I'm Doyle, your congregational care pastor. I want to thank you for joining us for a Sunday worship gathering. Today we continue in our Proclaim message series. So let's prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us today. And please give a warm welcome to my friend, Dr. Derry Long. Hey, good morning. Great to see all of you on this uh, lovely morning. Hey, we just want to remind you and invite you into something we've been doing every year the last few years called the Advent Conspiracy. It's a time when over and above our normal giving, our regular giving, we, we give to a special offering which will culminate over the Christmas season, and we do it to highlight a, a number of needs. This year it's going to go to some particular needs within the journey uh, ministry. Some of you, and your very generous giving last year, helped us do some things down with the uh, base camp and kids ministry that's been very neat and effective. Along with that, we're going to do some giving related to the uh, the uh, efforts towards an East Bozeman campus. And there are just a number of young, really sharp young leaders meeting regularly, and I get to meet with them. I am uh, twice the age of anybody else in the room, but they let me visit anyway, and uh, that's a fun uh, endeavor. And then we're also trying to raise money for, uh, to be able to fund 50 or more uh, children in Ethiopia and give them an entire year of education. And so, along with that, we've had a group of people contribute some funds so that every dollar you give, every dollar you give will be matched. So your giving will double in order to uh, do these good things and reach these goals. If you, we hope you'd like to participate in that. In the in the chair, the back of the chairs, there's these envelopes which you could either uh, drop in a silo or mail. You can also go online. Um, and, uh, and on the Christmas tree, there's a little, little ornament, and you, you can pick one of these up and hang them on your tree and use it as a reminder both of the giving and as an illustration to the rest of your family. So we hope you'll participate in that, and uh, the Lord bless us together as we do these good things. The Bible says, good overcomes evil. Um, we're looking at uh, the life of Joseph this morning as part of our proclaimed Christmas series. And uh, Brandon is going to sing us a beautiful song about Joseph uh, right now. I'm coming home. I'm running home to you. I just needed some time. Wrap my mind around the truth But I'm gonna stand by you No matter how the road may turn And my life's gonna change He's gonna change the world Never leaving, never leaving your side. Yeah. The road gets dark up ahead, you carry the light. And I'm gonna My life's gonna change. He 
Brandon. A couple years ago, I uh, taught a class called Leading from the Chair You're In. Often people think that leading has to be primarily from the first chair, but in fact, uh, everyone in here has a circle of influence. So the opportunity to lead, whether you're in the second or third chair, always exists. That's the story of Joseph. In the Christmas narrative, the Christmas narrative is correctly about Jesus Christ the Messiah coming to earth and offering redemption. Mary figures large in that story. But in that story is a man who showed such courage, such grace, that to cover the Christmas story and not talk about him would be remiss. Three times in his life, in this narrative, the angel comes to him. And every time the angel comes... God is inviting him into a difficult place. And yet he finds God in that difficult place. And he carries out his mission in that difficult place. And so we're going to unfold that a little bit uh, this morning. We're going to read uh, three different scriptures, one for each point, and uh, we're just going to start with the first one, because the first thing we learn about Joseph is that he finds God in the midst of the risk of misunderstanding. Let's have a look at the scripture from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. You can follow along on the screen if you like. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, took, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Sometimes you can can line up a, a date or an appointment or a lunch meeting with somebody and get the day wrong or the time wrong, and those are inconsequential misunderstandings. 
But here the Lord is asking, actually asking Joseph to live in a large misunderstanding. In biblical times, even if someone was engaged, it required a writ of divorcement even to break the engagement. And so Joseph and Mary are engaged, and she gets pregnant. Joseph, being a righteous man, wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to hurt Mary. And then he hears from the angel. But actually what the angel is inviting him to do is stand with Mary in a sustained period of misunderstanding. That other people, as they look at Mary, as they look at Joseph, they will not understand. And they will give their own meaning, their own meaning to what they see and what's happening. This misunderstanding will not just be localized in brief. Years later, when opponents of Jesus are arguing with him, they throw up his birth and the shady implications around his birth years later. And he stands with Mary in this place of misunderstanding. Sometimes the Lord invites us to stand in the place where there will be prolonged stigma to our obedience to the Lord. One of the aspects of loving others is embracing the stigma that comes from standing with them when there is stigma from their life or their behavior. In a crowd of this size, it is unlikely that some of us have not in the past or are not presently involved in behavior for which there is stigma. And if we love those people, if they are our friends or our family, we have the challenge in our heart, do I stand with them in the midst of this stigma? In our family that grew up in North Dakota, um, the phone rang in the middle of the night out on that farm and my dad answered it and he gets up and he begins to put on his clothes and he said it's the sheriff's department because my cousin had broken out of the reformatory in Mandan, him and a couple other guys, they had killed a guard in their escape and they were informing all the relatives in case they were hiding in the outbuildings of the farm. My dad said as he was getting dressed, something like that has never happened in our family before. There was stigma. And you and I have to choose whether we're going to stand with someone in the midst of the stigma they carry. And we hope that if a time comes in our life where there is stigma, that we will have someone who loves us enough to stand with us. And Joseph decides, I will stand by Mary. Even though no one, almost no one today or tomorrow or for 30 years will understand. And there will always be in some people's mind a shadow over this loyalty. I will choose it. Because the Lord has invited me into it. There's another aspect about being misunderstood and that's the aspect of invisibility. I have kind of a teaching mindset and I don't mind someone disagreeing with me but I hate to be misunderstood. And Joseph had to decide, I'm, I'm just going to own being misunderstood. 
And when you're misunderstood, you're actually being invited into a sense of invisibility because the true you, the you that you know is who you are, what your intentions are, what you mean, become invisible. And in this invisibility, you have to be willing to live without rancor or bitterness. Some people choose that kind of invisibility because of love. Imagine you are married to someone whom you love and they develop a debilitating, perhaps terminal illness that goes on for years and years and the care of this loved one begins to consume your life until you have no time for social gatherings. You have little time for volunteering for things. Almost everything is consumed by caring for this person until you you become virtually invisible to everybody else. And you know as you look at your wife or your husband in those debilitating years that perhaps the only one who sees what you carry is Jesus. And in that invisibility, you stand. Even though it doesn't reflect all that you are, it doesn't reflect your full DNA, it may not reflect your full gifting, but your commitment content to choose the second chair or the third chair be all that you can be in that chair and so when Joseph hears the angel it is the invitation into a place of stigma and misunderstanding and invisibility and he finds God there and because he finds God there he finds mission and purpose there but the angel shows up a a second time by the third time Joseph starts getting tired seeing the angel but uh, so far that's not actually in the Bible so so far he's okay and this time when the angel shows up he is invited into a place of past failure let's read Matthew chapter 2 When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Egypt was a place of failure. 400 years the people of Israel had been in bondage in Egypt. All the way leaping forward to the book of Revelation written by John on the Isle of Patmos. He's speaking in chapter 11 about the death of the two witnesses and the ignominy of Jerusalem. And he calls Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt, symbolizing evil. But the angel here is telling Joseph to get up and head to Egypt and there live in this place of the past failure of the children of Israel. Don't ever hide your failures. Your failures 
often become the greatest messages God writes through your life. When Paul is writing, he said, I am the chiefest of sinners and the least of all saints. We think, my goodness, this guy from the book of chapter 12 on in Acts, he consumes the book of Acts. He writes half of the New Testament. He, this is just false modesty. He says, I am the chiefest of sinners and the least of all saints because I persecuted the church. Translated means I did stuff I can't fix. I did stuff I can't fix. People are dead because of me. Their loved ones live with the reality of the death of the people that in my foolishness and pride, I saw die. Families are torn apart, never, be, never to be put back together because of me. And if ever someone had a reason to slide something under the table and hide it, it would have been Paul. Who is ever going to want me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ when they see that on my resume? And yet, in fact, the Bible tells us that Paul was this great witness who did all that Christ had asked him to do so that he said, I have finished the course I have fought a good fight. This Paul, you and I might come in here and we have a catalog of failures, emotional, mental, spiritual, relational. Don't run away from those. Someday those very failures may be the authenticating reality that your voice is to be listened to. If God was looking for perfect followers, there's enough evidence in the New Testament to tell us he would have changed his HR department. (laughs) This was a motley group from Peter who denied him three times, even withdrew from the Gentiles later on, to Paul. No... The angel said, take, take Jesus, take him to Egypt. And every Jew would know what Egypt stood for. He hears from the uh, angel a third time. And uh, it's Matthew chapter 2. Here we find God in the small, the insignificant, maybe even the place of prejudice. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was filled, fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. 
Sometimes I go to London, and if I go to London, I go down to Bond Street where Smithson's is. Smithson's is a stationery store. It is where the queen buys her stationery. I've not bumped into her, but nevertheless, she buys her stationery there. Evidently, other people know that she buys her stationery there too because you can buy a little box of 10 or 12 envelopes and cards for something like 45 to 50 pounds, which would be 60 or 70 dollars. Um, you can buy a little book there that's a book where you, where, you, where you keep track of your travel, except there's only three cities in the book, Paris, London, and New York, as if nowhere else exists. <laughs> so years later, when, when Jesus is recruiting his disciples, Philip comes and gets Nathaniel and says, you've got to go meet Jesus. And uh, Nathaniel asks him a little bit about it, and Philip says, well, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can any good come from Nazareth? I mean, this is not a high commendation. You graduate from Harvard or Yale? Well, no, uh, you know, the community college in Glendive, Montana, which when we lived in eastern Montana was called Harvard on the Hill. <laughs> I mean, who, who, could, who, could, who could take center stage if Nazareth was their home? That's like a Minnesota Viking fan saying, can any good come out of Green Bay? (laughs) Or perhaps a Montanan saying, can any good come out of North Dakota? Yeah. Nazareth was small. Nathaniel was from Cana of Galilee, right near Nazareth, so he knew the town. He thought, well, small and insignificant, and Nathaniel showed a keen sense of prejudice over anything that would come out of Nazareth. Here's what prejudice is. Prejudice is when somebody else imputes to you a disqualifying flaw. When someone imputes to you a disqualifying flaw. Interestingly, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and there is no one more adept at imputing to us a disqualifying flaw than Satan himself. And we live in a world of prejudice where people are always imputing disqualifying flaws. You can have educational flaws I have a PhD from the University of Birmingham in England. My dad had an eighth grade education. When, the, when he would go to the adult Sunday school class and everybody would read a verse, he'd ask the teacher to skip him because he didn't like reading out loud. His reading was so halting. But you know that every, almost every night my memory of my father was he was laying in bed reading? And later, later in his life, as we were talking about the meaning of life and the value of life and whether we're successful or not, I said, Dad, how many people do you know who provided for their family the whole life? At the end of their life, every member of their family still wants to come home. They have no enemy. They've been considered a great neighbor. They die owning their property and they have no debt.
The Gospels were written in a time of enormous ethnic prejudice. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans who were half-breeds. The Gentiles weren't even fit to be in the same room with. There was a big fuss one time when, uh, when people thought that Paul had allowed a Gentile into a part of the temple the Gentiles weren't supposed to be. They almost had a riot over it. Later on, archaeology found an inscription. The inscription around the temple said this, no Gentiles beyond this point. It's kind of a no, no trespassing sign for Gentiles. And, and they found it because there was this great divide. And yet even in Acts 2, when the, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the disciples were all together in one accord. They were praying. Tongues of fire appeared over their head. They spoke in other tongues so that everyone could hear the gospel in their own language. And one of the meanings of that is that before the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is level because everyone could hear the language, everyone could hear the gospel in their own language. And so whether we're in the midst of educational prejudice, religious prejudice, ethnic prejudice, even economic prejudice. Do you know in the days of the robber barons, when they were making millions of dollars and the immigrants were, were almost starving to death, it was being preached from the pulpits that God gave us our money. Therefore, if the people that work for you don't have any money, that's God's problem, not yours. And so the robber barons would say, God gave me my money. And if you're poor, you have some kind of moral failure. But it's fascinating, isn't it, when you dip into the seven churches of Revelation, that the church that was the richest church of all seven, which is the Laodicean church, God has not one positive thing to say of that church. It is the strongest rebuke of all seven. And the poorest church is Smyrna, who receives no rebuke and the highest praise. And so Joseph took his family to Nazareth, this little, out-of-the-way, inconsequential place, so small and insignificant that there was a prejudice against anything good coming from there. It's kind of similar to Jesus walking through the village, and, and Zacchaeus wants to see him, but he's a tax collector, and nobody liked the tax collectors, and he can't, even be, he can't even get through the crowd, so he climbs up on a tree, and Jesus stops and looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus. He said, well, how does he know my name? He says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. The people around must have been stunned. He's going to Zacchaeus' house, of all people. And you may hear a disqualifying voice related to a disqualifying flaw that others perceive. And so we have this Joseph who chose to follow his God and to serve his wife and the Messiah, knowing that it would include misunderstanding, 
knowing that it would include heading to Egypt, this place of past failure, knowing that there would be this prejudice against him and his family in Nazareth. But in each of those places, he met God. One last thing about the Christmas story. Both Mark and, or both uh, Matthew and Luke tell us about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew's talking to the Jews, and so he starts with Abraham. Luke starts all the way back with, uh, with Adam. But in Matthew's genealogy, fascinatingly, as he's writing to the Jewish people, trying to defend and encourage people to see Jesus as the Messiah, he includes five women in the genealogy. In a culture that did not value women. In fact, if you go off into the crucifixion narratives, you find that when all the men had stopped following the word for discipleship, Jesus, it was the women who continued to follow. The Bible says, minister to Jesus, were the first ones at the tomb, saw the risen Christ first, and were the first to give given the message, to take the message of the risen Christ back. And in this genealogy, these five women, four of whom were Gentiles, You think, Matthew, if you're trying, to convince the, you're trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, why are you highlighting that five women were in the genealogy and four of them were Gentiles? There was Tamar, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's son married Tamar. Jacob's son died. She was given no offspring. She dressed up as a prostitute. Jacob, wandering by her, took her in and laid with her, not knowing that it was his daughter-in-law. Tamar? Ruth was a Moabitess from Moab. Rahab, a prostitute that helped the spies escape from Jericho. Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. And her own husband was killed in the process of the cover-up. And Mary, whose birth of her child was always suspect. This is the genealogy of our Christ. What do you suppose he's trying to say? In that place of misunderstanding or of past failure or the hearing of the voice of others or Satan that you carry a disqualifying flaw there is Jesus Christ the son of the living God who says alright but you come unto me this is your mind that's the Joseph leading from the second chair who stands by Mary and glorifies his God. As we prepare to receive communion this morning, would you just bow your heads and set your things aside? This table of the Lord is the bread, the body of Jesus Christ broken for you. It is the wine, the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you. 
And in this moment, Jesus Christ comes to you and he invites you, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. And if you've lived in this place of failure, you've heard the disqualifying flaw that others have accused you of, would you lay it at the feet of Christ and invite him to renew your heart and come to this table to honor the Jesus Christ who walked this earth for you and died on the cross so that we might have eternal life. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net. Thanks.